This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, welcome, everybody. It's good to have you here today. We are in the second week of a series that we've called Dream Job, really intentionally trying to re-examine work and reclaim the joy that God wants us to have in the context of our work. And so today I just want to start by asking you a question. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you. It's definitely happened to me before where you show up, you're back at home after a long day at work, you walk into the house and you peer around, but things appear to be a little different. The house is dimmer than you expected. You may look over to the DVD player, maybe to the stove, and you notice that the power seems to be off. Now, if you're like me, my immediate reaction is that it must only be off in this room. So I need to go throughout the rest of the house, throwing the light switches back and forth to make sure that the lights are truly off. That ever happened to anybody else do that? It's so stupid, but I do it anyway. After that, after you've investigated fully throughout the house, I typically go to the breakers and make sure that a breaker has not been tripped and that we are really out of power. And I, I actually love the days that we don't have power because it keeps us from uh, things that so easily uh, entertain us like TV or movies or technology and it forces us to spend some time with each other. I love to play games with our kids or tell stories, but really I think that during that moment there's something that happens and it happens when the power turns back on. Ever happened to you? The power comes back on and every light in the whole house is on? Every light. You're like, whoa, that's a difference. This is so different than it was. See, here's what I'm praying today. I'm praying that as we talk today, that the perspective that you have in your heart of what work is will shift. That that switch that we all get the control over, whether we're going to look at this world through God's perspective or through ours, that somehow today it will switch in your heart. You may have been here in the last the first installment of this series, and some of y'all may be saying, but Kevin, I went back and I tried. I tried to take that perspective on. I tried to think about the way that you told me last time that, that our work is our worship, and we need to understand that worshiping God is something that we do in everything. And Kevin, I tried to do that, but it just didn't work. Let me remind you that just like those switches in our house, the switches of our perspective need to be connected to the greatest power source we'll ever know before they actually even matter. So let me start today with reminding you of a statement that I spent a lot of time on during the first message of this series. If you weren't here, I'd invite you to go online and listen to it. But it's this, that our greatest struggles are born from 
places where our perception is a great distance from God's truth. Now let me spend a moment kind of unpacking that for you because I want you to get this, that our greatest struggles, this is the fears that you struggle with, the worries that you struggle with, the strife that you have in your personal relationships, all those things, the struggles that we face in life, those are born out of places where our perception, the way that we think about it, the way that we think should be done, the way that we think truth is, is a great distance from God's truth. That's where our struggles are born from. So I I just, the last time I I spent a great deal of time on this, I won't spend as much time, I showed you this drawing, which is really kind of trying to illustrate where truth is. Truth is at the center of every good, healthy experience. And that truth is Jesus. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. We need to know that Jesus is the embodiment of truth. And that when he asks us to follow him, his way leads us to truth and to authentic life. But we tend to blow it by going away from the truth. We can go two different directions. I've illustrated those here, but let me just explain what they are. The kind of disassociate those words from any kind of political meaning, but we can go to a liberal understanding of truth, which is where we embrace the truth, but we embrace the freedom that's associated with it without the discipline. Because there's always a freedom that's connected to the truth of God. Okay? The Bible says in Galatians that the whole purpose of all of this is to set you free. It's all about experiencing freedom. But freedom without discipline is not freedom. And there's some of us that take the discipline far too to the other extreme and we don't have any freedom and we're, we're living in a system of rules and regulations and sometimes even compulsions that deny the freedom of God and We get way too conservative in that regard. But truth is found in a place where we have freedom, but we also have discipline. And I thought to illustrate it last time, I spent some time talking about food. Let me just do that again. Because food is a great way to understand this. How how many of y'all know God made food? Isn't that awesome? You ever thought about this? That a cow eats grass and then it makes a steak. That's a miracle. That's just just a straight-up miracle. It eats grass and it makes a steak. But for us, right, we, we know food is yummy. We love it. But we tend to err in the way that we understand food. And a lot of times we go to this side where we have way too much freedom without any discipline. Eat whatever you want, however you want it, whenever you want. And in that, we become a glutton. The Bible says it's sin. But we can also go to the other extreme where we become someone who's controlling in that regard. And there are people who have eating disorders that are born out of this side. They're so controlling of what comes in that they have no freedom, which is why we invited you to fast with us. Last week, we started 21 days of prayer and fasting, and our staff is doing a Daniel fast for 21 days For the first three or four days, they were mad at me about it. Some of y'all are doing it too. I mean, to be honest with you, I've learned a lot this week. It's been a while since I've done one of these where I've given up coffee. And if you know me, I love coffee. 
almost as much as I love my wife and kids. And it's close, it's close, close behind those. And so for the first couple days, there was this headache because I drink coffee every day. And you know what that headache was there to remind me? It was there to remind me that in my life, I've created a system where I can't say no. I can't say no. See, freedom only exists when you can say no. Not when your answer is always yes. Oh, coffee, yes. Oh, coffee, yes. I'll have some. Oh, coffee, yes. That's not freedom. As a matter of fact, that's bondage. And there's sometimes the fast that some of y'all are doing. I talked to a friend on his way in. He's fasting E-Trade. He, he spends a couple hours a day on E-Trade. He was worried about today because his Sunday afternoons are watching football in E-Trade, and he was worried about what he was going to do today. And there's some types of fasts. Some of y'all are fasting social media, and those types of fasts create room in our lives so that we can seek God. I'll take this out so that now I have more time to pursue my relationship with God. But there's fasts like what we're doing where we find out that our hearts are in Infected with bondage. And where we thought we were free, when you always say yes, you are not free. See, I think that we probably need to have a conversation about our hearts this morning. Because if we're going to talk about reclaiming the joy of work, it's going to start with our hearts. So let me remind you with something. It's just something in, in your first thing in your notes today. It's so important for you to be reminded of this is that our hearts will trick us. Our hearts will trick us. You ever notice that about yourself? Start wanting something, start wanting to do something. All of a sudden you get to do it. It just wasn't as cool as you thought it was going to be. Look what the Bible says in in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, where the Bible says that the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? See, the thing about our hearts is we live in a, a culture that has elevated this advice to the supreme. Just follow your heart. But follow your heart is bad advice. As a matter of fact, it's horrible advice. Some of the worst advice you'll ever give because the Bible tells us clearly that our hearts will trick us. Our hearts will trick us. Have you ever been tricked by your heart before? You ever been in a store and you just wanted something so bad? It looks so good. You wanted to have it. You wanted to take it home. You wanted it to be yours. When you got home, you start looking at it. You're like, I shouldn't have bought that thing. I should, now, now I'm fully convinced I was wrong, <laughs> right? It happens to us all. Y'all ever had dating remorse? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. I don't want wives. Do not raise your husbands will feel all bad about that one, right? You've just been convinced you're supposed to do something, and then you do it, and all of a sudden, it's just not what you thought it was going to be. Our hearts will trick us but there's something about our hearts i want you to see a principle that the bible teaches us really throughout it's the number two in your notes that our actions will influence our hearts 
And this is as much a cautionary tale as much as it is an invitation. That we can do the wrong things and it will have an adverse effect on our hearts, but we can do the right things and something happens inside of our hearts. Because here's one thing that you'll notice if you get around healthy people. Whether they're emotionally healthy, financially healthy, uh, relationally healthy, even physically healthy, you'll notice that they'll tell you that I, I, don't, I don't do this stuff because I, I, I want to. There are plenty of times that I don't want to do what's healthy. And if you live your life being guided by what you want to do, you will often never do what you should do. So Jesus teaches this principle in Matthew 6 when it comes to money. It's a broad principle that impacts our hearts. Look at what he says. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. See, Jesus says, all right, listen, I know there are going to be some of you, God's going to invite you to give generously. It's going to be the broad invitation throughout Christianity, one of the things that sets Christians off from those other religions that we are obscenely generous. And Jesus says, listen, I understand that you're going to push back. You're not even going to want to do it. But let me tell you, that when you start being generous in the kingdom of God, you start investing in the work of God, all of a sudden your heart is going to drift to the things of God. Once you start doing what's right, all of a sudden your affections will start shifting because your heart is fickle and will deceive you. See, for some of us, we need to let that excuse of I just don't feel like doing it pass from our lips. Because there are things that you know God's called you to do and you keep saying, I just don't feel like it. I don't feel like it. I don't feel like it. And it's not going to work the way that you feel like it and then you do it. The way it's going to work is that you start doing it and then after you've been doing it for a while, you're going to go, wow, I feel like I need to, whatever it is. And this is so important because I think that when we start to understand the way that we behave and how it impacts our souls, we can start to say, well, well, why not just fake it all? <laughs> if I can just, you know, kind of make it by, by doing the right actions eventually in my heart, why not, why not just fake it? See, that's a, a sad place to be, and the only reason we'd have to fake it is because we got it wrong. See, there's something about life that is very important to point out to you today. So number three there in your notes is that authentic life flows from our hearts. And I know this is a little tricky that our hearts can be deceitful. Our behavior then can influence our hearts because then authentic life is going to flow from it. But I want you to see this verse in Proverbs because it gives us some very important instruction when it comes to our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of of your life. I love the old King James where the King James says that it is the wellspring of life. Your life flows from inside and so the instruction of scripture is because life originates out of your heart, guard your heart. 
Guard it. Be careful at what influences it. Be careful at how you let it be influenced and guided because it will deceive you. So if you don't guard it and you have all of your guards down, your heart will deceive you and the life that emanates from it will be deceitful. And I think for many of us, our perspective of work falls right in line with that. You know how our hearts deceive us when it comes to what we do in our jobs. It happens not just in our careers or our jobs. It happens at home and our relationships. What happens is our hearts elevate the negative far above the positive. Do you know that psychologically that counselors would tell you that the average person, one negative comment carries the exact same weight as seven positive comments. One negative comment is equal to seven positive comments. That means that if you're just the average, I'm not talking about sensitive folks, all right? Some of us sensitive, and it's like 1 to 15, right? But for the average person, all right, guys, if your wife is average, which she's probably not, and you say, man, those jeans look a little tight. You gained any weight lately? All right, if you say that, that is equivalent to the next seven days of you going, you look great today. Next day, you look great today. The next day, you look great. And after seven days of that, you're only back at even. <laughs> you're only back at even. Our minds and our hearts fixate on the negative. And for many of us, when we think about our careers, we've done that. How many of y'all know that we do this at home too? You ever notice that about you? And maybe in your relationship with it, how many wives you would just say, if my husband could pick up around the house, our relationship would be so much better. Raise your hand if that's you. Right? A ton of y'all. All right? I know. He's a good husband, goes out, provides for your family, takes care of everything outside, but that one little thing bugs you. It's 5% out of the 100, but our minds fixate on the negative. So what I want to do today is because our hearts are so important, I want to give you three things that you can do that will help you guard your heart. Three things that you can do that will help you guard your heart. The first thing, this is in your notes, is we need to commit to quit complaining. Commit to quit complaining. Y'all ever noticed how easy it is to complain? You ever notice that? This past week it snowed. Y'all know, right? Everybody's got something to complain about in the snow. And I, I went down and spent the evening with my mom and dad. And because, you know, we, we thought it was going to snow 10 inches. And so we got to complain the next day when it was 9 o'clock and it hadn't snowed at all. We're so excited about it, but we're just staying with them, spent a good evening. Mom and dad was going to cook us a big breakfast, and we got up, and right when he was about to cook, the power went out. If you know my dad, all right, if a plan shifts, it rocks his world. All right, it just does. So it threw him off his game at that point, and I decided I'm going to help you. I'm going to take mom. We're going to go out and figure out what's wrong. We went out and ventured out in the massive snowstorm that we were having that morning. We came back. 
Dad, it's the power outage is all in the area. They're taking care of it. And just a little bit, the power came back on. And I walked in to the kitchen right after the power came on. And Dad was standing over at the stove. I thought he was cooking. And I said, Dad, are you happy the power's back on? And he goes, Kevin, I'd be happy if I can get these daggum clocks set. <laughs> you ever notice how easy it is to complain? We always find a reason to it. But look what the Bible says in Philippians 2 about complaining. It says, do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. I thought it would be helpful to give you a definition of what complaining is. Because a lot of times I'm not really sure we understand what complaining is. Look at this. Complaining is talking negatively about things you cannot change or you have no intention of changing. Can I just tell you today that some of us feel like we just need to vent every once in a while? The Bible never gives you permission to vent. Venting is complaining. And look at that verse. Can you put that back up there for me? I just want you to look at this. Do everything without complaining. A lot of times we focus on that verse and we love it because it says do it all without complaining. The Apostle Paul is writing this verse from a prison cell. It's only about 10 by 10, about four foot ceiling. He had to be stooped over all the time. You can't imagine how bad the context that he's writing. He's saying do it without complaining. Do everything. But we don't look at the end of that verse. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Can I tell you what happens when you're a person that complains? What happens is that you elevate the negative things in your current context to topics of conversation. There are always negative things to talk about. But when you're a complainer, what happens is all of those things, maybe in your work, maybe at home, you elevate those to become topics of conversation. And you want to know something about you that we don't like to know about ourselves is that there are negative things inside of us too. And when we create a culture where the negative things around us are the topics of conversation, eventually you're going to be the one that's talked about. You create a culture of criticism. So I think what happens when we make that decision, I'm not going to complain. I'm not. I refuse to complain. That those fires of criticism, we start pouring water on them. And while there will always be people who criticize you in our own personal culture, we'll walk away from that. The Apostle Paul gives us that advice right there in Philippians. And some of us, I think that we think, hey, you know, I'm just not going to say it. I'm just going to fight the battle. I'm not going to let it out of my mouth. But let me just tell you that it's not just what you say. It's how you think and perceive. That some of us have a critical spirit when it comes to the way that we deal with other people. And look at what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, that we need to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So we need to realize it's not just what we say, it's how we think. It's how our hearts function. Let me ask you this question today. I want you to think about this for yourself. Is it easier for you to complain or to celebrate? Is it easier for you to complain or to celebrate? Because I think for far too many of us, it's really easier for us to complain. 
when we've got so much that we need to be celebrating, which brings us to the second point, that if we're going to guard our hearts, we need to celebrate our opportunities and find joy in the challenges. We need to celebrate our opportunities and find joy in our challenges. And, you know, I think that we need to be reminded that work is a blessing. You may don't realize it when you have a job and you're putting food on the table. Well, let me just tell you, you take that job away from you, you're not ever to put food on the table. All of a sudden, any job is a blessing. That work is a blessing from God. The fact that you are physically capable, mentally capable of doing a job is a blessing. And we need to celebrate the opportunities. If you're a salesman in here and you get a new account that is a big account, you need to celebrate that. If you're a small business and you make a big sale, you need to celebrate that. If you're a teacher in here and you have that victory with that student, you need to celebrate that. If you've been working on a goal with your employees and you finally meet that goal, you need to celebrate it. But let me give you a key when it comes to celebrating. When you celebrate, don't celebrate yourself. Celebrate Jesus. Because I can tell you that a salesman who will always go, I got this sale because God blessed me, is a salesman that God will say, you are faithful with a little. I can trust you with more. But we don't need to just celebrate the opportunities. We need to find joy in the challenges that we face. And I think that so many of us need to be reminded that every job comes with opportunities and challenges. There are parts of every job that are negative that we will not like. I can tell you right now, I have my dream job. This is a job I always wanted. But there are parts of my job that break my heart from time to time. There are conversations that are difficult that I have to have. I got to watch people do something that's stupid every once in a while. Not be able to help them, not be able to intervene. There's parts of every job. And we need to look at those parts and realize that there's challenges that are there. But look at what James says in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And there's some of you that are facing trials right now. And I know that that feels like the exact opposite of the perspective that. Because when we face trials, what do we do? We doubt God. We scream at God. We get mad at God. We get angry. We get depressed. We get sad. But joy? But look at why he tells us that we need to have joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. See, he says, I want you to understand something. That the challenge that you're facing is producing something in you that could not be produced in another circumstance. And while most of us want comfort in our lives, it is in the midst of challenge that we often get the greatest gifts we ever get from God. And when we start to shift our perspective and to see that, there is a joy that is attached to that, that transforms our situation. Because here's the truth. Your situation doesn't have to change for your situation to change. You with me? Your situation does not have to change for your situation to change. Which really leads to number three. Let's look at that. 
that we need to refuse to let our perspective devalue our role in God's kingdom. We need to refuse to let our perspective devalue our role in God's kingdom. See, so many times there's some of us that we look at what we're doing in life and we say, but how can I make any difference? I'm just a, a guy that goes to work every day and my job's really not that important. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm, I'm really making a big difference in my life. I'm not like you, Kevin. I'm not sitting you know, in, in front of hundreds of people and teaching them every week. That's not my job. I'm not a teacher in a classroom. I'm not a leader in a corporation. I'm just a guy. I think that we need to be reminded that work is not just work. Your work is your worship. Work is how we worship, how we respond to the invitation of God to step into the things that he has for us. And we need to guard very carefully the perspective that we have of what he's doing inside of us. Last week I invited you to look at this verse out of Matthew 5 where Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And I think a lot of times when we've thought about that verse, we think about good works in the context of you know helping an old lady across the street or giving some money to somebody who needs some groceries. And those kinds of things are wonderful and missional and make a difference in the world. But in this context, Jesus doesn't use a word that means that. He uses a word that means what we do vocationally. That we as believers are called to work in such a way that people will look at what we're doing and go, wow, that is so different. You care about it on such a different level. Why? And this past week, I got to actually see that happen. I don't know if you saw that with me. Anybody watch the national championship game? Clemson and Alabama. I'm a Clemson fan. I'm sorry if you're an Alabama fan. All right, I love I love Clemson. My my daughter loves Clemson. Somebody I was a Gamecock fan, and then somebody gave my daughter when she was first born a little teddy bear that was a Clemson bear, and it infected her soul. And ever since then, she's been a Clemson fan. There's no rhyme or reason. She's never had anything to do with Clemson, but she loves Clemson. And because of that, we've started to pay attention to Clemson, and they have this really amazing coach. His name is Dabo Sweeney. Just a few years ago, he was hired with no head coaching experience, had never been a coordinator for very long in a college level. He barely played college football. But he's a heck of a football coach. And I love that after they win, in that moment when the spotlight is always on him, he always makes it an issue to talk about his faith. In a moment right after he was kind of brought up and they just won a national championship, I interviewed him, and, and he said, you know, only God could do this. If you know his story and he was adopted and all of the things that go with his background, only God could do this. And then when he was on the stage receiving the trophy, he made this statement which references the verse that we just looked at. He said, may the light that shines inside of you 
always shine brighter than the light that shines on you. What a, what a powerful statement. I think that some of us, though, we go, but that's, he's a football coach. He's a football coach. Everybody's going to talk to him and ask him questions. And I want to remind you of a little guy named David. Y'all remember David, right? He was a, a shepherd. His dad didn't really even consider him so qualified that when Samuel came to look for the next king, he didn't invite David in to be one of his sons. They had to call him in from the fields after Samuel had said, no, none of these that you have here are good. David's job was a shepherd where in the fields he would guard his father's sheep from predators. You can imagine wolves would come around and he would have to get them to leave. And He even tells accounts of bears and lions that would attack the sheep. And he chose a weapon that in private he would become an expert in using. A slingshot. On fields doing a meaningless job, he would hone a craft that in one moment would launch him into a superstardom and forever change the trajectory of his life. When he was sent to bring his brother's food and he overheard the Philistine giant insulting the armies of God and he said, I'm ready for you because I learned how to lead and play with the slingshot in a private moments of my life when I was guarding sheep. Without armor, without a sword, David took down Goliath. And I want you to see this principle that's so important for you to know is that your work may be preparing you for your greatest victory. I don't pretend to know what that is for you today. I don't pretend to know what God's doing and what God's teaching you, but I can certainly tell you that in the darkest, most mundane moments of my life and my past, God was investing something in me that will become very valuable later in my life. And I promise you that if you can just let your perspective shift, the same thing is happening with you. I read a story, it was written by a lady, she lives in Winston-Salem, I've since became a little bit of a friend with her and corresponding with her, her name is Debbie. Debbie wrote a blog this past week that went viral, you may have read it, but here's, here's Debbie and her husband Aaron, when they first got married. Debbie said, you know, he's such a good husband, here's a, here's a picture of him with his twin sons. They have four boys. The last ones were twins. Can you imagine what kind of family that was? A lot of fun, right? Here's a picture of them all together. Aaron was a middle school PE teacher. Debbie was a stay-at-home mom. Until one day, something changed. She describes that their biggest arguments used to come when he would leave his clothes laying around the house. She used to get so mad about it. She said, if you were going to take most of our arguments, you would probably say most of them came from this kind of just silly stuff. But her perspective over all of that shifted when one day a trooper told her that her husband had been deceased. 
And after she had gathered herself and walked back into her home and looked over the small mess that remained of his laundry, she realized that his laundry was laying on the floor because Aaron would come home and want to play with the boys and so he would change quickly. She said, you know, those words that your husband is deceased, I I thought those words would be the most life-changing words that I'd ever hear. Until I said these words, God, this is your world, not mine. I lay it all down. I give it all to you. You know what you're doing. I'll trust you. You see, allowing our perspective to shift allows us to see things the way that God sees things. But it only happens when we humbly come before him and submit ourselves to his authority and say, God, I don't want to see things the way I see them anymore. My perspective is just not good enough. It's not big enough, God. And I think that in that, maybe some of us recognize that we've got upset about things that don't matter. And in hindsight, she would tell you that her husband was selfless and generous and caring and loving. That those clothes were more a representation of joy than they should have ever been of strife. So today, what could change in your life today if all of a sudden your perspective shifted? What could change? Maybe that fear that you've been dealing with, that worry that has never left you, the doubt that you've always wrestled with. What if all of that, God through his mercy, brought freedom to you today? Because it happens when we humbly come to God and say, God, this is not my world. It's yours. I trust you. I give you my life. Now you, you lead me. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.